Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Romans 16, uh, I joke with uh, Garrett before, uh, I really wanted to make someone else read this one, because uh, if you've looked through it, uh, there is a lot of names that I have literally no idea how to pronounce. So uh, I'll just ask for grace and mercy from you, um, and we're going we're gonna to play this game. I'm going to pretend I know what it is, and I'm just going to say it really fast, and you're going to nod your head and pretend that that was right, and then we'll get into what the text says. So... Uh, yeah, that's the way we'll go about it. Romans chapter 16 is where we are uh, today. Uh, so I'll read that. It starts with this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and myself as well. Verse 3, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I gave thanks, but all the churches and the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my uh, beloved, Apatnius, uh, who was the first convert uh, to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, uh, who has worked hard for you. Uh, greet Androconus and Junia and my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well uh, known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Greet Amplitus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ and my beloved Stash. I don't think that was right. <laughs> Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to my family. Aristobulus, uh, greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord. Uh, Tipnia and Typhosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Uh, greet Asyncritus, Philegion, Hermes, Patribus, Hermes, Hermas, uh, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nereus, and the sisters of Olympus, uh, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. Contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but they serve their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the the naive, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good, and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius and Jason and Sopater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. And Gaius, who is a host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and my brother Quartus, greets you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to uh, my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept, or kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord with some bad pronunciation. Thanks for the grace. 
Uh, so, so we're there. This is, this is it. Uh, this is the, the finish line in Romans together. We started this series all the way back in uh, January 9th of this year. So all year, pretty much, we've been just right here. And I want to remind us really quickly why we went to this book uh, as we're going to kind of land the, the plane. At our 10-year anniversary last year, we talked about uh, future hopes for the church here, ways that God had kind of honed and altered and refined uh, the vision for Redemption's Hill. And one of those areas we preached about and talked about was what we called a faithful biblical worldview. Uh, the elders felt compelled uh, to equip the body here at Redemption's Hill to be able to use the word, the Bible, to be the lens that they view the world through. Uh, to equip us, and here's kind of the meat and potatoes of it, to equip us to not run immediately to blogs and news and podcasts and uh, social media influencers and maybe your favorite celebrity preacher or some Christian theologian or, or somebody else, not to run to all of those things for how to process the things coming at you in the world that you live in, but to be able to instead use the, the word personally to inform our worldview and how to see the things happening around us. And the hope was to help the, the church, the body, be more confident in, in their equipping that an open Bible and the Holy Spirit are enough to help the average believer be able to walk more faithfully uh, and, and live in and, and navigate a, a world that maybe just seems a little bit crazy to us. So why do we pick Romans for this endeavor? Because it's hard like really hard. And we, we picked it specifically for that reason, knowing that you're going to have to think, you're going to have to process, you're going to have to go like, why is that there? And what is he doing? Why did he say it this way? You're going to have to process a lot of heavy things. And then also in the book of Romans, what's going to happen is some of the things that you have believed are going to get challenged. I warned us in the first couple messages, you're probably going to be slightly bothered some point in this message, which means this is the perfect spot to equip the saints because it sharpens the skill of thinking and processing on your own. Uh, and, and that's why we did things like posting questions on Monday mornings for us to be able to use so that through the, the week, before a message is preached to you, before someone delivers the, here, this is what I think it's about, you have the chance to process that on your own and wrestle with that on your own and build the skill of being able to kind of interpret some things in the Bible on your own. We, we want to encourage you. An open Bible and the Holy Spirit is enough for you to be able to see the world. Are you going to need some help sometimes? Yeah, sure. Man, I think, I think you can do more than you think you can, though. And so we wanted to equip that in this series, and I hope as the finish line that we've done a good job at that. My, my hope is that for some of you, you would look at maybe your confidence to navigate the word prior to this series and go, man, I, 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 I feel like I've grown a little bit in that. And we, we'd consider that a great victory here. Uh, so now as we look to land the plane and finish things off, this final text it may not look very significant in the book of Romans. Uh, after all the robust theology and the, the weighty subjects and the doctrine and the beauty of Romans 8, we come to this list of names, a really long list of names and hard to pronounce names. And one person I read said it feels like the equivalent of after a, a passionate chapter on missions that we get Paul's list of Twitter followers. Like, I don't understand. Like, what, what, what is going on here? Uh, and if we were to direct someone new to the faith where to go in the Bible to, to grow, uh, this is probably also not the section that we would take them to. But just because of that, because it just has a long list of names that are hard to pronounce, and, not and just because we wouldn't maybe send a new believer to this chapter doesn't mean that it's not full of gold for us. These names, as, as hard to pronounce as they may be, they all represent people. 
And hear me, they, they represent friends and co-laborers of Paul. These names, they represent real relationships. That's going to be the word for today, relationships. They are real people who've done life and ministry with Paul. He knows them. He knows what they look like. He spent time with them. And what is amazing is this book that is so full of doctrine and so full of theological depth ends with, a, with an emphasis on persons and love and this crucial reminder that humble servants of God are going to do a myriad of beautiful, active ministry things in their life together. It wrangles things in in such a way that we have to see the Christian life revolves around relationships. Christianity is not a solo project. It is a communal endeavor. It is a relational endeavor. It is commanded to be together and not neglect being together. And if you're catching that, all the theology, all the doctrine, all the Christology in the book, it all leads to, hey, don't practice this in a vacuum or on an island or all alone. It leads to being walked out in practices with one another, with the people around you. When we describe the church as a fellowship or a community or a people, those terms, they all revolve around relationships, around people connected. If we back up and remember the focus of love that happened in the, the 12th, 13th, and 15th chapter, and the focus on unity with one another, if we remember the calls to build one another up and see each other flourish, we can probably tell that those directives, those are relational as well. That has have to deal with how we navigate each other. None of that stuff was meaningless. It all had a point. We don't do Christianity alone. Christianity is the act of one another ring. Look at Jesus' life. He spent so much time with friends and in relationships, especially around a table, that the people around him accused him of being a drunk and a glutton. Right? They couldn't understand, like, why are you spending so much time with, with people? Why are you around the table so much? Why are you spending so much time with those kind of people and, and, and them? They, they assumed that he had to have some sort of vice. He, they, they didn't understand the reality of relationships. And then you look at Paul's life, and he spends an incredible amount of time with friends as well. If you look at the book of Acts, you see that he's going from one person to another to another of all people that he's in relationship with. An analytical person may look at that and go like, what was he doing? Was he lazy? Is, is that a waste of time? Couldn't he have been doing like productive ministry work, valuable ministry work in that time that he was just with his friends? But the massive realization is friendships and relationships aren't a hindrance to ministry. They're a fuel for it. There's weird things that, that me and Garrett Hurt said at the, even at the beginning. You can't plant a church with your friends. You can't do ministry with your friends. The Bible doesn't say that's true. We are relational people. Our, our friendships are our soul food to keep you moving. They are the context that healthy ministry happens in. If we're doing ministry without relationships, something went really, really wrong. Part of the beauty of Romans 16 is it clearly also shows us that Paul is not a one-man man. He is not the, the varsity quarterback and everybody else is useless. Paul swam in friends, Jew friends and Gentile ones. In this list, we see male and female, young and old, educated and uneducated, married and single. Uh, we see slave and free and rich and poor and the weaker brother and the stronger brother. All of those things happened. He traveled with friends. He stayed with friends. He ate with friends. He visited friends. He worked alongside friends. He was beaten with friends. He was put in prison with friends. He sang in prison with friends. He was freed from prison with friends. He was put back in prison with friends. He was shipwrecked with friends, ministered with friends, ate with friends, laughed, cried, wept, encouraged fought with friends and sometimes reconciled with friends, right? What are we getting at? 
this giant of the faith didn't accomplish the beautiful things that God called him to alone. Uh, This is what he's showing us. He's showing us his love for friends at the end. He's laid a foundation already that all the power is God's. Any salvation or transformation that we see is from the the triune God and the God alone, but he's also showing that the context for all that ministry to happen is in relationships. If you're thinking, wow, you're really pushing this whole friend thing really hard to land the plane, this isn't a feel-good message about, uh, about besties where I'm trying to subtly tell you, like, so be nice to each other. This is a, a, a theology of friendship that I think he's laying before us. Paul's constant interaction with co-laborers isn't about a weakness that he's trying to shore up. And his constant interaction with, with other people and friends is, is not about a, an extroverted wiring that he's kind of working out and fleshing out through people. It's about the Imago Dei. We are made in the image of God. We were made to walk in the image of God, and when we do that and recognize that we are in the image of God and walk in that, that's a sign of maturity. This is what we're called to in Jesus. God is restoring his image in us through redemption, slowly but surely, making imperfect, broken vessels reflect him more and more and more as we grow. If you look back at Genesis 2.18, God looks at Adam and he, and he says those words, it's not good for man to be alone. And this statement's not just about marriage either. Why? Why isn't it good for him to be alone in the garden? Well, how can he enjoy paradise without companionship? How can you enjoy the, the, the things that God has created without other people and all alone? And the introverts go, well, I'd have a really easy time doing it. Well, walk it out a little bit, and, and you wouldn't. Think about it. Do you ever feel lonely or isolated when you're not distracted by your phone or other things like that? This isn't weird. It's not a form of weakness. It's actually quite normative. You were made that way. You're made in the image of God. You were created to be in relationship. We long for relationships, not because we're like clingy or latchy or, or not, not confident in ourselves. We, we do these things because we're made in the image of a relational triune God. Our God created in relationship, created us, invited us in relationship as well. It's a sign that we are not ignoring how we are made. Past a wiring issues, we're kind of setting the stage for all these friendships and relationships. These friendships that Paul is mentioning, these relationships as well, are a comfort to us. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul talked about a time that he was uh, troubled in every way. And, and it talks about him conflict after conflict, and he's persecuted, and, and he is just downcast in his soul, and he feels crushed by the weight of everything going around. And, and what does it say in the text? God comforted him through Titus, a relationship, a friend. How do I, how do I build up my brother? I, I'm going to send him Titus. I'm going to send him his friend. In Hebrews 3, it says, make sure to encourage each other daily, like actually do it, right? And we're actually going to that book next. But what is it saying? So you need to encourage each other as long as today is called today so that you're not going to get a hard heart towards God and an evil heart and an unbelieving heart towards God. There's a way to assume, like, that's only certain people that do that. It doesn't say that. Does all of you encourage each other as long as today is today because you personally could get a hard heart. You could have a calloused heart towards God. The case is all over the Bible for friendships. We are wired to have them and walk in relationship. We need them to encourage us. And we need friends in the gospel to help us from going astray because we have hearts that are just prone to wonder, prone to get distracted. 
Paul in chapter 16 is declaring thanks and appreciation and love for his friends and the people that he's relationally connected to. That's why this isn't just some weird list of meaningless, faceless people. They're brothers and sisters in Christ for Paul and their people that he needed. Paul would not have been able to do what he did or accomplish what he did without them. It took people, people who cared for him and labored for him and had his back and helped him out, remembering um, this isn't some weird extra biblical focus as we're talking about friendships either. This is the important part. The gospel unites us vertically to God, but the gospel also unites us horizontally to each other. And the only, uh, the only way that we can be the church is with that horizontal reconciliation. Paul is walking in that. Now, there are about 28 names listed that Paul wants to greet, say thank you to, shout out to, profess his, his care for. And we're not going to look into each and every one of those people and, and who they are and, and what they mean, partially because that's not the point. And second, like, there's literally some of the people we don't know anything about. But I want to draw some important things out of the list, even though we're not going to go into all of them. Of the 28 people mentioned, did you notice that about 10 of them were women? And moreover, the first three people mentioned were women. Think about that. This isn't trivial. When thinking of Paul's relationships and with thinking about the people that he absolutely could not have done what he did without, women are not only amongst the list, they're the top three. And he doesn't say like, hey, this is my number one, but he's still, the, the very first three are not males. Phoebe, the first woman mentioned, Paul calls her a servant. This word in the original language is the word used for deacon all over the New Testament, diaknos. A deacon is a leadership position, a leadership position where someone leads through their service and kind of leading over an area of service. Paul was giving acknowledgement for her leading in the text clearly. We often get into these weird modes where we want to debate and have roundtables and discussions of, of whether women can lead. And Paul just thanked a woman for wonderful leadership here. Notice Paul's not asking the question, can a woman lead? He just thanked a woman for her leading. If you've gone through a membership class, you know that text is, is why we kind of feel the way that we do uh, about women in, in leadership. It's why we embrace women leading in a deacon capacity and other roles as well. To name a few of the areas as we think just locally in, in our church as we try and interpret this well, we have Amy leading really well in our Redemption Hill kids and a lot of our systems. So if you're thankful for the new structures that we have, if you see some health going around the systems or email reminders and things that are just really helpful uh, to you, and I've had a lot of people be like, man, the kids check-in thing has been so great. That's 100% not me, that's all her. A woman leading well in the body. We have Stephanie leading our hospitality team. She had a meeting to lead them even this morning. That went wonderful. She's doing a good job in that. We had Lauren and Stephanie lead on uh, how to do evangelism and teach the body about that uh, several months ago, and they did wonderful. We have several ladies leading in our shared leadership structure and missional communities. So from facilitating a discussion to leading a push on mission to leading us in prayer to leading us in fellowship and family, we have ladies serving in all of those capacities right now. Why? Because the Bible kind of shows us this example and we want to follow it. If you look at the greeting of Priscilla and Aquila, uh, the, the words to them are powerful. He calls them his fellow workers in Christ. Fellow, not lesser, not second rate, fellow workers. 
And he says they risked their necks for Paul's life. Paul says, it's not just me, but all the Gentile churches are actually really, really thankful to them. Their role is invaluable to us. We could not do what we do without them. They're not ladies who are expected to just sit quietly and do nothing. They were courageous, bold leaders who happen to be women. And hear me, this is the beauty of exegetical preaching. We didn't decide, man, we should just make the ladies happy, so let's preach on this this week. It's the next text that we're in. It's not for an attaboy, and we don't have somebody in the, uh, pushing on us on the side going, hey, you should really kind of press this. It's, it's just what's in the text. And, and I bring it up because we want to model this well. Women leading in the church in every way that the Bible says is open to them is what we're aiming for. And knowledge from the church that we could not be who we are or do what we do without them. So here's the hope. If you're a lady here, the, the hope from the elders is that you would feel encouraged and empowered to lead, that you would feel like there's avenues for you. Uh, and if not, I would, I would love for you to come talk to us about that. We have not always got it right, but when we're trying, because we want to see you flourish. We want you to feel like you have a place here and a role here and a value here. And one of the things that we've talked about in some of our meetings and our membership meetings as well is we don't want to get to the end and God go, why did you tell them no on all these things that I never said no to? There's so much gifting that I gave them, and that's something our hearts don't ever want to get into. So we want to see you flourish, not because we think it's politically correct, because the Bible shows this example of women doing beautiful things in leadership. Now, I mentioned that some of the people we don't really know much about, and I think that reality is actually a beautiful point to us. Uh, There are people who are mentioned here that Paul values and is thankful for, and they're not in history books elsewhere. Uh, They're not celebrities, they're not powerful, they're not rich, Uh, and yet Paul says, hey, you made all the difference for me. I need to thank you for what you have done and how you've led and how you have helped. Uh, And I want to encourage you that it's not just extroverts or people with microphones or people with power that the church needs. We need faithful, regular, everyday men and women to follow Jesus, be known and know others, and work in the church. The work in the church does not hinge on celebrities or charismatic personas, though. It hinges on regular people doing extraordinary things through this. And and here these words are intentional. Regular people doing extraordinary things through long, boring, and yet beautiful faithfulness. That's the craziness of the gospel plan. I'm going to use broken people to do amazing things. Ordinary people to do amazing things. Faithful friends is a powerful thing inside the church. And I think Paul was showing us that as he greets these people. I couldn't do what I did without them. I'm so thankful for them. God, I'm thank you that you redeemed them and me and aligned us and let us work together. Now, though Paul has spent the time to thank friends and those alongside of him that he's relationally connected to, the, the, the tone shifts in verse 17, doesn't it? And what he does is he gives a warning, and it comes through the act of an appeal. And Paul says, and I appeal to you, brothers, like he's saying, man, I, please, 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 if there's any leadership in me that you trust, please would you hear this, right? This is kind of the the appeal. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and watch out for those who create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that we have been taught. This is a deep warning to the church in Rome and to us here now. In this warning, he's saying there is a danger that is coming. it's, It's to be expected. It's not, hey, this may happen to some people. It's this is coming 
for you. For me? Yeah, for you. For all of you, expect it to happen. And he gives not only the the danger, but he also gives the response. He says, when you see people who are bringing about divisions, and when you see people causing people to stumble and putting stumbling blocks over doctrinal issues in front of them, notice that that's two issues, not one. A lot of times we read this and we smash it together and we think he's only talking about people who, who have wacky doctrinal issues that they're trying to push. No, no, no. The first, if there's people who cause division, this is a blanket statement, a person who sows division, trying to divide, trying to cause issues, that's the first person. Or if you see a person who is bringing doctrinal obstacles and trying to make lesser issues into dogmatic issues and wanting people to fight and wanting people to pursue things that that doctrinally aren't even there in the word, either case, and in both situations of both types of people, avoid them. Sit on that tension, right? Like, I don't know if I like that. Let it sink in. He, He doesn't say... Listen to them. Give them your ear. Respect their opinion. He doesn't say pretend like everything's fine and just get along for the sake of unity. His prescription is a very clear one. When you see those people, avoid them. Completely avoid them. To our modern sensibilities, this feels awkward, doesn't it? feels mean. Avoid them? Yeah, avoid them. And many people don't like conflict, so they don't really want to avoid dividers because maybe they'd have to answer for why they're doing it. So they're like, no, it's just easier to kind of like stay together, pretend that there's no issue here. And even more problematic in our current culture, conflict is idolized. And the people who run conflicts have power. So sometimes people not only don't avoid dividers, they press into them. They amplify them. They give them their ear and they give them their time and they give them this, this, this constant, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. But Paul says, don't do that. Don't give their smooth talk time to get into your heart and don't let their flattery win you over into their divisive habits. Cut them off, avoid them immediately and persistently. And, and hear this, right? We can tend to think that like, I'm not gonna get fooled. He's not saying, hey, when people come with ridiculous, insane, crazy arguments, avoid them. He's going, no, 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 everybody knows that. When they come with smooth talk and things that sound right and they flatter you and they make you feel good, but they're bringing in things that the ultimate angle is to divide things. Stay away from him. He's going, you can get tricked and so can I. This may leave you and I wondering, okay, well, what in the world's going on here because Paul's made a huge deal about friendships, relationships. Thank 28 friends. He spent so much time about talking about love and and unity and fight to stay together just in order to do a 180 and say avoid certain people. So make you think, like, what gives? Like, why in the world is he doing that? This this advice seems almost self-defeating. Love, unity, stay together. Do whatever you can to stay together, but avoid them. These two sections seem like they're antithetical. Hear me, they're not. Paul didn't have a a brain slip. These things go together and they're placed together on purpose 100%. The reason Paul tells us to avoid dividers is because of relationships. 
It's not weird that he talks about relationships and then avoiding. If we're made in the Imago Dei for relationships, if we need relationships of other believers close to us to help encourage us and help us not go astray, then Paul knows nothing will destroy those relationships faster than divisive people. You need those. You are created for them. They defend you. They encourage you. They press you into mission. They show you the beauty of Jesus. But if you encourage dividers, it'll rip all of that away from you. Division will be a wrecking ball that divides and steals your relationships. Division is cancer to close friendships and unity in the body. Avoiding dividers is a way to keep relationships together. And I get it. There's that thing in the heart that goes, but I don't know. I just feel like that's mean. We have to realign our vision a little bit. Without hesitation, he says, avoid dividers. And again, when we think, well, that's not nice. I don't know if I can do that. Paul's message to you would be, then you don't value your relationships. Because we could go like, well, I, I just feel like, I don't know if I could do that. He's going, well, I understand you're looking at the divider in your relationship with them, but what about your relationship with the family? You avoid the divider to keep the family, to keep the relationships together. Division will crush relationships if left unchecked. To fight for unity, the body at times will have to avoid people. And you're going to have tons of people who go, that's mean and that's terrible. And you're supposed to love and Jesus is love and just unity. And I can't believe you'd be like that and you do that. You have to silence all that. Avoid dividers to fight for unity. And notice, this is what it means to be wise about what is good and innocent of evil. That's what he transitioned to. It's difficult. To avoid dividers is to be wise about what is good. Notice what he's saying. I'm trying to like calm down and make sure the heart's in good posture for this. To not avoid divisive people is to participate in evil. Well, like, I didn't do it. You didn't avoid it, though. That's his message. When wisdom would be, I'm going to avoid that division to defeat it. Participation is the evil. Let me press that again. It's sinful to let division go, to entertain it. And there's that thing in the heart like, ooh, juicy information. Sinful. It'll break relationship. This is why, again, we need the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Help me be wise about what is good, innocent of evil. Let me see the reality. Let me see if this is someone sowing division or if it's a reality of a beautiful thing that we need to see. Will you help us see? And I love how Paul ends this section saying and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Paul's saying to us clearly, it is the plan of Satan to divide the church to death. To crush it by causing division so much that it will be unfruitful and unproductive. But each time a believer comes to faith, 
Satan's head is crushed by Jesus. If you look in Genesis, we see the proto-evangelium, the, the, the first words of the gospel where God comes after Adam and Eve after their sin, and he tells them, I'm making a plan, and I'm going to send a redeemer, and he's going to come, and he's going to crush the serpent's head. This is the, the analogy of the cross. Jesus on the cross will crush the head of Satan. Each time a believer comes into the faith, Satan's head is, is crushed again and again and again. And each time we stay together instead of dividing, it's a fresh reminder that Jesus is defeated you. You will not win. One day he'll fully unleash all that he's done when he returns. And I, and I love this. Every time we stay together, Satan gets a fresh glimpse of the reality that you lose. You lose. You can do whatever you want, but you lose. Jesus has defeated you on the cross, and no matter how hard you try, you cannot take his victory. We have to stay together in order to see it, though. How does one end possibly the greatest letter ever? Well, Paul does it by going back to the way that he started. He loves bookends. He did it at the beginning, and he does it again at the end. He goes back to the gospel according to the scriptures. Remember, Paul showed us the gospel fully in verses 1 through 11. I mean, every angle you can want to see it, he kind of went after it in there. And then he showed us how to live it out in 12 uh, through the beginning of 15. And then he called us unity, love, and unbreakable relationships on the backside of 15 and 16. And he ends by saying, friends, church, magnify the wisdom of God with me. This great gospel isn't just what saves, it's what strengthens the saved as well. That's the message to whether you are a new believer coming into the faith or you've been in the faith forever. He's saying you need the gospel at every step, at every corner. It's what sanctifies us. It's what makes us look more like Jesus if we stay in it. So be thankful for friends who point you to it and be thankful for the gospel that could do what you could never do on your own. The gospel is what reminds us of the work of Jesus, that he can save even the most lost sinner because of his perfection. The gospel is about Jesus and it's what shows us Jesus' church. Paul's grand message is see the beauty that at one time the gospel was hidden to you, to all of us. This is our case. You didn't know it. You were blind to it. You were running in your rebellion, but now it has been revealed to you. Now you see Jesus through the, the beauty of who he is. Now you can see the God's great plan to redeem all of creation or his sons and daughters, the way God takes broken vessels and he saves them one soul at a time. And then he takes these formerly broken vessels and he unites them and then he unleashes them to, to share the beauty of Jesus so that other people can be saved. God has made a plan whether you to be no plan, unites broken people and he deploys broken people and he's going to see more people saved that way. Paul just stands back and he goes, I'm in awe of this. I'm in awe of the wisdom of God that he would be able to make a plan and then have the power to carry it out. How great are you? To God be glory forever and ever and ever. He is the one who's made a way. Church, as we land, I pray that you see the fullness of the gospel. God has sent Jesus and through his perfection and righteousness, we have all that we need. This redemption doesn't come through your ability or your likability or, or your, your ability to clean out your life or anything like that. It comes through Jesus, and that changes everything. I hope that your trust is put in that today. And if it's not, I would just ask you, why not? And give you the invitation to lean into the Lord. There's moments for all of us where we have to realize, man, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. God, will you save me? I don't even know what all of that means. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have your life cleaned up. That's the beauty of Jesus. I need you. He offers this free hope. I pray that you've leaned into it or maybe that you will choose to. 
And as we walk away from today, I hope that the Lord has shown you again the value and beauty of community around you and the relationships. Coming off of weird COVID era and the summer and all the things, I pray that we would look around at the people next to us here and go, man, I need them. They're a valuable gift of God. That's my brother. That's my sister. That person has encouraged me. That person pointed to Jesus to me when I wanted to run the other way. That person helps me walk and chase Jesus. Thank you, God, that you've given me, brothers and sisters, people to walk with, people to call. When I'm at the wit's end, you have given me a beautiful thing in my family in God. If you've been walking alone, as if you don't need others, this would be my invitation to you. Would you just repent? change that. You were not meant to be strong enough alone. Right? And maybe some of you even feel disappointments. I've tried and tried and tried alone. I just can't. You weren't meant to. The hope is that you would see the beauty that God has given us brothers and sisters to walk with and defend and see the beauty of Jesus with. If your heart's going, man, I want that, but I, I kind of don't know how to get there. Here's the other thing. Tell someone that. I think the enemy makes it way harder for us or we'd be surprised if we just reached out to other people and like, man, I, need, I haven't been in community and I need, I need a friend and I need someone to walk with and, and encourage. And uh, will you do that? I think you'd be surprised at how quick God will bring relationships together. God has united us through his son. Now we get to walk in relationship with him. And I hope that we'd have the same response as Paul as we land the plane, all in worship. Thank you, God, that you would do this. You've made a plan. It's way better than anything I could have ever conjured up or thought of. Jesus is the, the means and the source and the life for me. And I just believe in him and he transforms me and he holds me forever. This is the greatest news I've ever heard. I pray that your heart would be in all of it. What a plan God has made and the power to pull it off. Man, you guys can come back up. We're going to take communion today. Uh, the cups are in the entryway. You do not have to be a member here uh, to to take. But 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Hear that, church. It is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. At any point in worship, feel free to take. I pray that you would spend a couple times maybe bowing your head and pray, Lord, thank you that you've done this for me. Thank you that you have made a way where there was no way. Thank you that you have given me your grace and your mercy, Lord. Lord, I pray that you show me the beauty of the table. That would be the hope for us today. I pray that you would be encouraged in this and that you would see the beauty of relationships and a God who's united us to each other and to himself. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, I pray that you would do your work in us as we lay in the plane in this series. I pray. Holy Spirit, would you remind us of the fullness of what we've heard? There was no righteousness available before your son. Not something that we could grasp a hold of. Nothing that we could clean our slate with. There was nothing. And chasing anything outside of you is vanity, Lord. 
but you have sent your son. May we see that. You're a good father who's looked to set us free from our sin, not captivate, not put us in captivity. Lord, we stir in the beauty of the gospel in our hearts, Lord. I pray for those that have been walking alone, that they would see the reality that they need each other, that we're meant to follow you with brothers and sisters. May we walk in relationship well. Would you deepen our relationships? Will you deepen the gospel amongst us? Will you deepen the beauty of us walking after you together, Lord? I pray that in your name. Lord, would you be glorified? Would you be made much of? Draw our hearts to you. Meet us at the table. We pray that in your name, Lord. Amen.